Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and the artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview the directors of One Child Nation, Nanfu Wong and Jialin Shang. Their film won the 2019 Sundance Documentary Grand Jury Prize and is now available on Amazon. Both Nanfu and Jialin grew up in China when the government was putting enormous pressure on families to have only one child. When the policy began in 1979, it was widely reported as necessary for population control. By the middle of the next century, if China's families have an average of three children, there will be starvation. However, with one child per family, the standard of living doubles. One Child Nation reveals the human costs of the policy, including forced abortions and widespread sterilization. Countless infants wound up being trafficked to orphanages where they were adopted by ill-informed American families. In the film, Nanfu uses the example of her own family. When she was born, her parents had hoped for a son, so they defied the policy to have a second child. Whenever someone found out that I had a brother, I felt embarrassed, as if our family had done something wrong by having a second child. Under China's state-controlled media, there's been little scrutiny of the one-child policy that ended in 2015. Even Nanfu's own mother still defends it. I wish I could say something to my mom. Like most people in China, she believes the policy was necessary for China's survival. But I wondered if people like her really thought it was worth the sacrifices each family made. The making of the film is a dramatic story on its own. Nanfu and Jia Ling were operating under constant suspicion from authorities. Their crew members couldn't even take the subway because they would be tracked by swiping their card. Jia Ling explains. Also, what was shocking to me that is all this surveillance system that getting more and more high tech, and we read news reports about facial recognition, and until now we don't know, still don't know how accurate and how efficient it can be. But something scary. It's easy to become paranoid sometimes because you don't know. Nanfu already had a history with Chinese authorities. Her first film, Hooligan Sparrow, profiled a female human rights activist. Nanfu shot the film with hidden cameras and faced intimidation. I sat down with Nanfu and John Lane last summer. I started by asking how Hooligan Sparrow had prepared Nanfu for making One Child Nation. Hooligan Sparrow is really a film that I would say changed my life and my worldview. Um, it was my political awakening moment. While I was making the film, for the first time I realized that Chinese government, the way that they surveilled um, the citizens. And when I was there, they interrogated my family, my friends, and then eventually... The even day- though your family and friends had nothing to do with the making of the film. Yes, even though they didn't even know that I was making such a film. So... I think the first shocking moment was the week after I went back to China and started filming the protest. And my family suddenly called me and asked, what are you doing? Where are you? The national security agents called and asked all about you. 
And they had no idea where I was. And that was when I realized I was being monitored. And they even reached out and discovered who I, who I was, who my family was, and contacted them. And so fast forward to three months later when I finished filming. The day before I left China, I was interrogated by the National Security Agents for five hours. And I lied to them. I secretly recorded their interrogation and put part of the interrogation in the film. Um, in fact, the opening of the film. So um, when Hooligan Sparrow was finished and released, I had no idea what would happen if I tried to go back to China. Now, can I ask you for a second about that experience making Hooligan Sparrow and becoming more politicized? It's not like you came from a political family. It's not like you had a strong streak of activism in your own background before that. So what gave you the nerve and determination when you were getting this intimidation to keep on going? When I started, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And when I was already involved in it, um, it was deep in there. And at that moment, I was so shocked and outraged and saddened by the reality. It was almost like my first encounter with my reality in the country, with what the government and what the country is actually is, which is different from what I was told since I was a child. And at that moment, I think the outrage that I felt and also the fear that most of my friends and family would still believe the positive narrative that the government portrayed. And if I didn't show the world what I've witnessed, um, the story would never be told. Um, so I think that fear um, was greater than the fear of um, being arrested or being endangered. Now, it's one thing to have that kind of courage for yourself and stand up for your own rights. It can be feel different when your family is being intimidated. Um, and, and I wonder how you, you know, kind of rectified that in your own mind that, that you were taking chances that m might not only implicate you, but could implicate your family. Um, at the time, I also had a conversation with my family and asking, are you going to be okay? You, what do you think? And um, my family was really supportive, um, which surprised me. Um, of course, my mom had worried so much and told me, oh, you shouldn't do this anymore. Uh, never uh, get yourself into trouble. But I remember my uncle, who worked as an official, actually told me how much he agreed with what I've discovered, what my belief to what I'm doing is significant, and encouraged me to do it. Um, so I think all of those um, at that time is really the responsibility of telling the story and also all the subjects' lives. They, some of them were in prison. Some of them were in really crucial circumstances. Um, it was way more to consider than my own family, which they also kind of ensured me they would be fine. And I didn't feel like I had a choice. Jia mm. uh, Ling, can you talk about how you first met Nan Fu? And I'm curious what your impressions were of her documentary, Hooligan Sparrow, as, as an outsider to that project. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so Nanfu, uh, we actually been, we have been friends for several years before we started working on this project together. At that time, she reached out to me that because she wasn't sure if she can travel back to China, but we are, we are not, we're never sure to what extent she's being monitored by the Chinese government. So that's Am I right that you two met in the U.S. when you were both studying here? Yeah, yeah. We both went to NYU, went to Nielsen Documentary Program uh, under the journalism school. So I went in 2000. And I, and she went two years later. That's how we met, yeah. And then, yeah, when we started working on a project together, it was um, late 2016, and then in the beginning, I traveled more to China, and and later she take more risk, and then travel to China. We're always very cautious every step she take, and we're always paying attention that um, guessing to what is to what level she be monitored. So she didn't check into hotel. She didn't. Uh, try not to take public um, try not to take chance because all those require a national ID and um, in China like you need once you need a national ID and then all those high test surveillance system um, if, if, if that's a sensitive name maybe the system will send a lot to the local authority and they will be prepared so we'll try to avoid all those kind of risk and it was a lot of uh, I mean, it was, it, to some extent, it was pressure, but at, a, at the same time, there are very interesting challenges, like working together with, with someone like Nanfu. And we, it's a, in a process we learned, it's like we, na we navigate through the surveillance system, and, and like it's just a very interesting challenge to have. And Nanfu is one of the most courageous women I've ever known. And then some, sometimes she's afraid, like she's afraid, she's worried that, okay, what will happen? Like, but always at the, in the end, she would just go. Nimfu, in the film One Child Nation, you describe as as an illustration of the way boy children are preferenced in families. That contrary to the one child policy in your family, there were two kids: there were you and your younger brother. And when your father died, your younger brother, who's interviewed in the film, describes you having to go to work uh, for the family so that the so that your younger brother could focus on his school can you explain like how old were you when that happened and and what it was you had to do to go to work i was 12 when my father died and i started my first job when i was 16 and as ironically because of the lack of education resources i became a local at elementary school teacher uh, when i was 16 as the youngest teacher in the entire city and uh, I taught almost every subject that they need. They needed. Um, so I was really devastated because I had a dream to go into high school and college, and I wasn't able to. And every summer during the vacation, my middle school classmates they would come back and they would tell me about the high school. And so from there, I became determined. I wanted to be like them, and I would take any means that I could. So I started reading books, and in China they have a self-taught program. If you want to pass, um, if you want to get a equivalent of a bachelor degree in literature, for example, you would take um, ten courses, and each course has four books, and then you read the list of the books, and you take the exam, and if you pass it, you get an equivalent of a degree. So you don't have to go to school. You just read it yourself. And that's what I did for, I think, 
three and a half years. And I got an equivalent of bachelor degree. And um, first of all, equivalent of high school and then equivalent of a bachelor. And with that, I was able to apply to graduate school. And in 2007, I got a full scholarship to go to Shanghai University for a master's degree. And that was when I first left my hometown. And at that point, your your family was no longer as much dependent on you to, to be an income earner. Yeah. Um, so throughout that whole time, I was still able to make money. Um, there wasn't a day that I didn't work, so I still supported my younger brother. Even when I went to Shanghai, the full scholarship covered the tuition, and I was working, um, I think, always two jobs at the same time. In the film, we hear a lot of defenders of the one-child policy, including your mother, uh, defends it as as something that she feels was necessary for China to move forward economically. Um, you know, the, the, the description is that if there hadn't been a one-child policy, the country would have been overwhelmed um, uh, by need and starvation. Um, and, and I'd just like to hear in your own words what your reaction is to, to that philosophy. I was very frustrated when everyone I talked to justified the policy in one way or another, even including all those people who suffered from the policy. And my mom, for example, she so firmly believed in the starvation uh, narrative, and so many people use that narrative too. And if you look at Chinese history closely, you would realize that the starvation was not a natural disaster. There wasn't uh, it was actually a man-made disaster. It was the result of the Great Leap Forward. But the Great Leap Forward is something also our generation and the younger generation to some extent have never even heard of because it was erased from the history of China. A lot of us, um, my friends included, they told me they've never even heard of the Tiananmen Square protest until they came to the U.S. or until they went to the airport out of Hong Kong and to found a book that talked about it. So when my mom talked about it, I really tried to convince her. I argued with her on camera and off camera and tried to share with her what I learned. But I realized it was almost impossible. Even after I finished the film and showed the film, the finished film to her, she still said, oh, yeah, everything you recorded was so truthful. And what I've, what I've witnessed was much worse than what your film showed. But I still think the one-child policy was necessary. So I think that just revealed how effective a country's propaganda could be. And if someone has never left the country, has never been encouraged to think or to question or to examine or to reflect it's really hard to get them to do so. One of the things that is staggering to me about China, modern China, is that it has moved something like 850 million people out of poverty uh, in the last 40 years. And, uh, and, and I wonder if that would have been possible without the one-child policy. Uh, actually, the fact that China's economy developed um, in the past few decades is more due to the fact that the country re, 
uh, loosen its st the state control on the economy, and there's an open uh, reform policies uh, that also to led to place in China since 90s, late 1970s, and uh, and the fact that China's one-child uh, how one-child policy contribute to the China's ec economic growth is very actually very limited and and. And in fact, it's going to be a drag for the country's economy in the next few decades because uh, the, the society is, is aging and there are not enough young labor. Um, it, it's, it has been a myth that how one-child policy like being beneficial for the country's economy and more and more research and evidence shows that uh, the role is very limited and it has more to do with the uh, uh, with with uh, market reform uh, of China, yeah. Nimfu, you say in the film that you feel angry with your family for uh, their defense of, uh, of the one-child policy, and yet that defense is something that is kind of widely held in, in China, as you uh, depict it. Um, so I wonder if there is a, a, a tension you feel that you have this different perspective that you've gained from living outside the country, uh, and now when you go back, uh, you face a kind of clash of, uh, of perspectives. Absolutely, every day on an everyday level, and sometimes it's really sad, because all my friends, my closest friends, friends that I had for 10 years, 15 years, now we suddenly have two different value system, and they sometimes criticize me for doing the films that I did by saying you shouldn't have created a negative image of China showing those films internationally. Um, the patriotism that the government try to um, have for in everyone really through the decades of propaganda indoctrination really worked. Like people do believe that we all have the responsibility of making China look good. Like when we were child when we were children, we were taught that China is our motherland, which is your mother. No matter how poor or ugly your mom is, you never criticize her. And that's the sentiment that people are having. So even today, um, a few hours ago when um there was something about One Child Nation. I did a TED Talk, and that TED Talk was translated into Chinese and actually available to be seen uh, in China. So some of my friends saw it and sent me messages and saying, there are a lot of issues in, in the U.S. Why don't you expose those? And you shouldn't be doing this. And I tried to talk to them. I was like, yeah, in America, the media are doing that. And we're, it's just a sad that I had to go through so much arguments with some of the people that I love the most. Have you yet had other reactions uh, from uh, China beyond just your, your friends, the film? The film won an award at the Sundance Film Festival, so it got a certain amount of notoriety. Um, uh, and, and I think you experienced some difficulties uh, going through the Chinese... Um, film approval process to get the dragon seal that would allow well, it we, to... We never... <laughs> that would have been, we didn't, didn't even, even attempt try to try okay. that. Yeah, that would be impossible. So in China, yeah, that what you were saying, I think a lot of people probably don't know, like for any film to start production, they need to get permission. 
And then once they get finished, they also to need to submit the finished version to reveal and to get another Dragon label in order for it to be shown publicly, to even attend festivals um, outside of China. But for us, there's no way that we could even try that. We knew it's impossible. Um, we haven't had any direct encounters with the government after the film was finished, but there were two incidents that we um, noticed. One is in China, they have the equivalent for IMDB page, so a website where they have film pages and reviews. And somebody created a page for One Child Nation when we initially premiered. But within days, that page was taken down. The photo is still there. The title is there. You click it, it will say this page doesn't exist. And then similarly, on the same website, they reported all the awards winners for Sundance. They were uh, best cinematography, best narrative, best editing, and a list of 20 awards winners. Only One Child Nation, the Grand Jury Prize winner, was taken out. (laughs) (laughs) They really made an effort. We talked about the kind of strong criticisms of China that that your films have, this and Hooligan Sparrow. Um, But, you know, are are there ways in which you culturally, you know, feel Chinese and take pride in uh, in being Chinese? Absolutely. I think no matter when, like I am still Chinese, I am still a Chinese citizen. And even if one day I am not a Chinese citizen, I'm still Chinese. I think it's so part of me, the central identity of me is being Chinese. It shaped me to who I am. Um, I think it's because the love that I have towards the country that I'm trying to keep doing the work and trying to show and what it is and trying to make it better in the way that I think I could. And in festival, I encounter a few Chinese. They also they also become upset simply because the film doesn't make China, China look good. And it took me such a long a long time to realize that the that the love of your country doesn't equal the love for your government, and we criticize because we care and we want it because these people that we portray in our film uh, they don't have a voice in China, and as someone that comes from China and we we know the culture intimately and we have this sense of responsibility to keep this part of history that you can that even after 50 years, 100 years, people can still look back and know that this, know this, uh, this we save ha- part of the history and not just the official propaganda version. We want to offer the alternative truth. There's a chapter to the story, maybe a chapter that is still yet to be told in this film, about the, the, the Chinese children who were adopted internationally, a lot, I take it, in the U.S. and uh, in some other countries. And uh, those children who, you know, I guess are now reaching their 30s from the early days of when the one-child uh, policy started, in, uh, starting in 1979. And it seems from the anecdotal evidence in your film that... Um, that a lot of the families that you contacted seem to have a reluctance to you know, try to make connections to their birth parents and 
you know, can you talk more about, you know, your understanding and what you've learned about that generation of, of adoptees? We've seen both um, adoptees who eagerly wanted to find out where their birth family, birth parents are and whether they have siblings and try to find the true story. And we also encountered the people who really didn't want to have anything to do with their birth families. Um, and I think in both cases, I really understand them, uh, especially the latter. I think I didn't understand until I was making the film. And I, also until I really got to have a conversation with the adoptees and families themselves and understand why they didn't want to have anything to do with their birth families. I remember um, our character, Longlan, um, she is the woman in Utah. She told us that among all three of her adoptees... Um, this is a, uh, a woman of Chinese origin, uh, married to an American guy. They've adopted three uh, kids from China. When they were doing this, they didn't quite have the wherewithal about what kind of conditions these kids might have come from only learned many years later that probably uh, her children had been trafficked in some way to orphanages that were supplying an international demand. Yeah, that's right. So they spend a lot of years, a lot of effort trying to locate their daughter's birth family. And then eventually they did. One of the daughters found their birth family. And through conversations, I asked, oh, that how exciting. They must be thrilled. And then yet... I realized once they are connected, the daughter does not speak any Chinese, does not understand any Chinese culture. There's a really little real communication you actually could have with your biological family. And that's true with a lot of adoptees. Um, their life has been away for so long and so different. And that's why I think I can understand the emotional distance that sometimes they could feel um, towards their birth families. I feel like there's bound to be a kind of generation of reckoning uh, amongst those adoptees, the ones at least who, you know, feel some yearning to be reconnected but have to overcome that gap that you're talking about. I think, like you said, these people are all turning into their 30s or late 20s. Soon they will be parent too. They will become a mom um, and when they go through that process, I really believe that is a process that would change a lot of their perspective, and they would very likely have a very different view about whether they want to be connected or how they want to be connected with their biological family once they become parent themselves. I want to thank Nanfu Wan and Jialin Shan for speaking with me. Their film One Child Nation is now streaming on Amazon. Nanfu's previous film Hooligan Sparrow is also on Amazon and other platforms. If you're in New York City, I invite you to join me for the Pure Nonfiction screening series at IFC Center. Every Tuesday night, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers. The winter season runs till the end of March, and the spring season will take place from mid-April to mid-June. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. 
thanks to our team. Series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.